Welcome to Being Human. This week, my guest is Brian Robertson. He is the author of Holacracy, the revolutionary management system that abolishes hierarchy and the founder of Holacracy One, um, which both of which we can get into during during this call. So, Brian, welcome to the call. Welcome to the, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Richard. Yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure. So, we've all, we had one of your colleagues, Sally, Sally McCutcheon, on a previous episode, and we got into Holacracy a little bit, and that was very much focused on the mechanics, and we also sort of spun out into teal, and and so that so so some of our listeners who heard that will have some background, but there may be others who are coming to this fresh. So I thought we'd we'd start with what we mean by Holacracy, some of the basics of it. Uh, and then perhaps we can get into some of the examples of where it's been implemented, and then where you're going next with it. That's what I thought as a as a broad outline for the for the for the show. Sounds great. Okay, so let yeah, let's start with for listeners who you know maybe they've heard Holacracy for the first time. They're like, well, what's that? So should we just start start there at the basics? Uh, yeah, totally. So um, oh, where to start? Well, Holacracy is a framework. It's a framework for running a company without a management hierarchy. And, uh, you know, when I, I say that, I, I feel like I, I need to caveat two things right off because people get the wrong idea <laughs> more often than not. Uh, when I say running a company without a management hierarchy, people tend to picture kind of everything they know now about a company, but without the management hierarchy. And they picture chaos. Uh, they picture, you know, uh, anarchy and no structure. And so one thing I like to point out is it, it's not just the removal of management. Uh, or the removal of managers. It's the addition of a different framework for getting to the same result. You still need a way to break down work. You still need a way to clarify who does what, who makes which decisions. So it's, it's just an alternative to using a management hierarchy to get there. So one of the common misconceptions is, you know, this has no structure. And I like to point out, uh, companies running with Holacracy today have more structure, not less than a management hierarchy. They just arrive at the structure differently. Instead of managers breaking it down, there's a, a, a process that everyone participates in that kind of creates or builds clear structure, right? So you end up with more structure, not less. It's just much more flexible. It's much more agile. It's adaptable. And everyone has a, a part of that instead of it being just a manager's job to create clarity, right? So uh, that's one thing. The other thing I, I think is worth pointing out right off the bat is... Uh, when you hear no managers, often people think um, all decisions must be made by consensus. And that actually also couldn't be further from the truth. Companies running with Holacracy have more autocratic decision-making than a management hierarchy. It's just broken up differently. It's decentralized. Different people make different decisions, but everyone knows who makes which decision. So I thought that would give us yeah. some good starting point. Yeah, go for it. That's great. So, so maybe let's just pick up on a few of the specifics of of what that new structure looks like for people to, for it to be concrete in people's mind, you know, what does that actually look and feel like? Yeah, totally. So it's, it's Holacracy is a role-based structure, role-based system. So it breaks down work into a series of roles and a role isn't the same as a job description. You might end up filling 20 roles. Uh, the roles are really tiny functional units and you might fill roles all over the company in different teams. Um, we call, think of a team uh, in our language as a circle. Um, so Holacracy structures things with a bunch of different circles. Um, circles are organized in this, this uh, we call it a holarchy of scope. So there's larger circles that include sub-circles. So we might have a marketing circle and uh, we have a service delivery circle in my company, a training circle, and all those circles exist within a broader circle that integrates all of them into a broader business. 
And within each circle, there are roles. And Holacracy breaks up the work by clarifying what are the roles we need to achieve the purpose of our overall circle, our team. And then it, it clarifies what each role has the authority to, to do or decide. So you end up with this decentralized environment where everyone has these little roles and every role has some real autonomy, real power. Uh, and then there's a process called a governance process in every team to evolve those roles. So the roles aren't static and they're not defined by someone in HR or whatever. They're, they're the team itself creating clarity of how do we structure and break down the work. And it's dynamic and it's living and breathing and we're constantly working on the structure and changing it. So right. at least a little glimpse. I could uh, uh, yeah. some examples. No. Of yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe, yeah, that'd be good. So yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe start with a few examples, like take a typical role that people would understand in a business today and how that would look different in, in a lot yeah. Yeah, well, so the real difference is, is how they change or evolve. So I, let, just give a, here's a real story of, of how this happens. So I fill a role right now, I'm filling a role called Holacracy Spokesperson. And I give a bunch of interviews and, you know, conference talks and things like that. And I, I spread the word. So my role has a purpose and it has some accountabilities. And the accountabilities tell me what's expected of me in this role. And my colleagues know they can count on me for those things. So when we first create the role, though, we don't try to document them like you would a job description. We start it with the minimum possible structure, right? Uh, we start it lightweight. So when we first created that role, it had a purpose and nothing else, no accountabilities. And we started with just go, go forth, uh, try to express this purpose, right? Do the best you can. Um, and then we work together. And so I have another role I work with called a casting agent. And the casting agent role books my spokesperson role for talks, right? So uh, I do a lot of conference speaking and the casting agent gets all the invites. We get a lot of invites for, for talks and conferences and she has to sort through all these invites and figure out where to send me in the world, when, which ones to say no to, that kind of thing. And when we started with that role, it also had pretty much just a purpose, maybe one accountability, and it was otherwise very lightweight, very simple. Just go do it and see what works. But then somewhere along the way, we had some tension. This is a, a true story. So the casting agent, uh, my casting agent colleague, right, she filled that role along with many others, but that role, uh, she was finding that she'd get these invites for me to speak at a conference. And she'd spent a lot of time negotiating with the conference organizer. She'd figure out a plan, she'd present it to me, and at the end of her entire process, I'd shoot it down, right? I'd say, nope, sorry, I'm not gonna go. It's the wrong market, or the audience isn't big enough, or whatever, right? And you can imagine, she felt a little disempowered by this, right? She did all this upfront work, built a relationship, and I just give her a no at the end. And so she went into the governance meeting of our team. So both of our roles, casting agent and spokesperson, are within our marketing circle. And you know, she, she brought up a, a proposal in that governance process. In the governance meeting, we change the roles and we can add expectations or accountabilities to roles. Right? So she said, she proposed adding an accountability to my spokesperson role. She said, I'd like you to be a, accountable for publishing, defining and publishing the criteria you use to decide which speaking engagements to accept or reject. She said, because if, if you publish that and I could see it, then I could assess by that criteria myself in the very beginning of my process, right? And instead of waiting until the end to get shot down, I could, I could figure out myself which ones are worth negotiating with or not. So she proposed that. And in that governance process, it's pretty cool. We, we never look for consensus. We don't look for we don't ask everyone, do you think that's a good idea? Or do you agree with that? We ask one simple question. There's a little process to it, but ultimately it comes down to this one question, which is, 
do you see any reasons why adding that expectation on the spokesperson role will get in your way of doing your work? That's it. We're not asking, do you think it's a good idea or do you agree with it or do you like it? We're asking, will it get in the way of you doing your work? And if the answer is no across the team, then the accountability is automatically added and adopted, even if nobody else really sees the need for it. It helps one person and that's enough. So if you do see a reason it gets in the way of your work, that doesn't stop the proposal. That just gives us a creative puzzle to solve, right? Like how do we figure out how to meet her need without getting in the way of your work? Um, but in this case, no one saw any reasons, right? No one had any reasons why that's going to get in their way of doing work to expect that spokesperson has to document this criteria and, and publish it. So in about two minutes, we had a new expectation added onto my role and she was able to turn to me and say, great, so when will you have that done for me by? When do you think? Now, the interesting footnote in this story, I'm the founder of the company, right? And a seasoned CEO before that. She was our newest hire right out of college. In what companies do you know where the newest hire right out of college in two minutes can add an expectation onto the founder and then turn to him and say, so when are you gonna have that done for me by? Right? I think that's pretty remarkable. And, and to mm -hmm. me, that really illustrates the difference. It's not just the way of breaking down the work into roles. It's the fact that they can evolve and change. And there's no managers to get in the way or control that. It's and why do you think... On a so, sorry, and why do you think that she had the... What is it about the way you're working that had her have that confidence? It's down to... Um, in she knew how we operated, right? She had been at the company for, I don't know, six months at that point. She had enough of a grounding in this is our power structure. There is no CEO. There are no managers. Um, instead, there's a constitution that spells out how this governance process works. And when you fill a role, what can you expect from others filling roles? And what powers do you have? And it's, it's all clear. And there is no CEO. There is no manager. So she knew that. She was in this power structure where power wasn't about the status of the person. It was based on the roles you fill and the governance process, and everyone has access to that. Right? Everyone on a team, anyway, can go to the governance process for that team. So, you know, in this case, it's, I mean, I don't want to make light of it. This is a massive change. Like getting there from a conventional company with a management hierarchy is a many year journey. You're radically changing the fabric of how power works. But once you do that, on the other side of the work, you have a completely different kind of culture and kind of company where people don't look for the typical status hierarchy cues. You know, they don't defer their own leadership and their own power to others in the same way. They just lead their roles. It's, it's like everyone becomes a CEO of their roles, you know, and that's what she was doing. She was being a CEO of her little role that had a job to do and there was something she needed for me to get it done. And she didn't let status and all that crap get in the way because that's not the power structure we have at play. Right? And she didn't need permission. She didn't need buy-in from the team or a manager. She just needed to go bring a proposal to add an expectation on my role and then count on it from me. Right? And the whole structure is oriented to making that not personal. It's about the work and the purpose. It's not personal. Right. Okay. Uh, so, so, so there's two things that come to mind there. One is that I, um, I've had a, some involvement with 12-step communities over the years, and it reminds me very much of the way that they're organized, like these, um, uh, these, these fairly fixed constitutions and, and fixed roles. So it's different in the sense that I don't think it's quite so much adaptability, but there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of focus around the, the role that you're inhabiting 
as opposed to something that's more informal and a hierarchy of of um a sort of line management it's less like that and it's more like you've got these there's the chairman of the group and there's the person who's responsible for the literature and there's the person who's um you know responsible for the tea and you know these are quite clearly understood roles and and there's kind of an interplay between these these roles and that it, it reminds me of, of that environment absolutely uh, another another metaphor i thought and really useful is look at the human Human body. There are trillions of cells working together, and there's no CEO cell telling the others what to do. Um, but there is clear structure. There's a highly structured system, right? And there's autonomy. Every cell has its own internal process, and there's no outside party reaching in and structuring the cell. It's a self-organizing entity, but it's also part of a larger organ, right? So you've got this, this autonomy at every level, every layer. The organ itself is an autonomous unit that's just a part of a broader system, you know, and this is nature's way of organizing complexity. And I think we've seen it in various human endeavors as well. Uh, it's similar to go out in society in a city and, you know, we don't need a local baron anymore or king directing the action and telling us what to do. We just know, you know, where our property line is. I, I know what's mine to control, what's my neighbor's, you know, and when we know the way we break up and divide power, we don't need somebody to appeal to uh, in the way we do in a, in a feudal system, say, right? Um, and yet most of our companies look like feudal empires today. I mean, that, that's, that's, which works fine when complexity is low, but it doesn't work well in the face of, of mounting complexity, which I think right. we're certainly seeing a lot of that today. Yeah. Okay. One, one thing I read online was there was, there is this, there is some level of hierarchy, as I understand it, between the, the lead link role a, 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 who, who, of a of a circle and then the subcircle. So as I stand it, some the 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 broader circle can define the purpose of the subcircle. Is that right? So there is a there is a hierarchical link in that sense. Yeah. So one thing I'd say is the point of holacracy is, despite the subtitle my publisher chose of my book in the UK, <laughs> the point of it is never to abolish a hierarchy. A hierarchy is an incredibly useful type of structure. Um, it's and I never set out in the creation of holacracy. My goal was never to remove management hierarchy. I, I I really appreciated what a good management hierarchy can do. The point was to increase clarity and increase empowerment. And what I found was when you do that really well and you get really good clarity, you're doing the work that we typically want managers to do, and you can do it better. So it was an accidental obsoleting of management hierarchy. So to answer your question, there are definitely hierarchical elements here. The goal was never to remove them. But, but we have to be really careful there. It's not what we mean. When, when most people think of hierarchy in company, they think of a command hierarchy. It's a type of hierarchy, a command hierarchy of who can tell whom to do what. That kind of hierarchy does not exist in holacracy. The broader circle has no command authority over the subcircle. It has a definitional authority. So it's a definitional hierarchy, not a command hierarchy. In other words, the broader circle can define the boundaries of the subcircles or the roles within it right, within the broader circle. So the broader circle can say, you know, this is in scope of the marketing circle and that's in scope of the sales circle or whatever. Here's what marketing gets to decide, here's what sales gets to decide. But it can't make those decisions for the circles. So it's never commanding, go do this or take this project or take this action. No authority for that. It just has the authority to define the boundaries of what power does this circle or that circle have or this role versus that role, right? Um, just like in my example, Right? We can break down and, and say, 
what authority does the spokesperson have or the casting agent? Who actually gets to decide which events to accept or not? In this case, the spokesperson does, right? But it was, so we define who has the authority to decide, but we don't define the decision. It's not a command. The circle never says, go to this event or whatever. It can't do that. It just gets to define the boundaries. So it's a, it, it's a type of hierarchy, absolutely, but it's a completely different type than we're used to. Um, okay, yeah. And maybe that's the uh, that's a, a misconception because I think that maybe that's why people so kind of when they when they read it on face value and they're like surely this yeah. you can't abolish it completely and so what I'm hearing from you here is a nuance. Yeah, totally. And even within the broader holacracy is a highly customizable system. So any given organization is going to have certain roles that make decisions that other roles are kind of following. But it's all mixed up. It's not like, it's not an art, in a management hierarchy, the CEO can counteract or veto any decision anywhere in the company. There's nothing like that anymore. Now it's in some roles, I make a decision that then others are kind of following in a way, but in other roles, they're making a decision that I'm following. And it all depends on the roles and the breakdown. And often it's just each of our roles in parallel have its decisions to make. And then, you know, there's obviously some points where we're connected or, or, influenced by the other, but uh, it's just a very different type of authority structure than what we're used to with a simple command hierarchy. Right. But I suppose the, the cynic in me was to say, okay, this is all very well, but if I'm somebody who's driven by status and power, I'm going to find ways to game this so mm. that I can still coerce people in ways that I want to coerce them. And did Absolutely. you see that? Oh yeah. All and, the time we see people doing that. <laughs> yeah. Um, the interesting uh, question to me isn't like, is, is it possible or not to game holacracy? Of course it's possible. Any system is gameable in some way, right? The real question to me is, is it easier or harder to do that gaming in this structure versus management hierarchy? Because for this to be valuable, it doesn't have to be game proof. It just has to be less able to be gamed than management hierarchy, which frankly, I don't think is a very high bar. Have you ever seen somebody gaming the system for status and ego and management hierarchy, right? In fact, I'd say that's almost like so ordinary and normal that we expect it in management hierarchy. And we even sometimes promote directly because somebody's good at playing that game. And it's with holacracy. Yeah, I'm just thinking about the first company I worked for. We'd, we'd even talk openly about that and say, yeah. you know, this guy is very politically astute or he's very good at yeah. playing the game. And it's almost like, yeah, of course he should move along because yeah. it's like. It's, right. You almost totally, lose a right. sense of that that might be a bad thing. Yep. With holacracy, it's, I mean, you still get people trying to game it and sometimes succeeding to some degree, but I think it's less mm. practical to do it than a management hierarchy. And when you do do it, even if it's successful, it's more visible and it, it's uh, more clear to everyone you work with that you are working around a more effective system for your own personal status and gain. And when that's really visible to everyone you work with, that tends to decrease the behavior right then and there. Uh, and it, it tends to get more uh, almost like antibodies uh, coming out uh, and, and in the system and attacking it when, when it happens. So it's certainly possible. I'm not in any way claiming that that never happens. Humans have egos and, and they show up, but holacracy turns the lights on on them and it gives you more effective ways to actually get beneficial change for the organization. You don't need to, to use my example with my casting agent, colleague, you know, she could have achieved something similar, maybe in a management hierarchy by playing politics, but how long and how much effort would it have taken her to play the politics, to have an expectation on the founder of the company, 
versus in our system, it took her two minutes with no politics, right? Which one is she going to choose? Is she going to choose the political route or is she going to choose the governance meeting where she can in two minutes get an expectation added with no weird slimy politics required, right? It, it just gives you more effective ways to drive real change and it makes it obvious when you're choosing not to use them and choosing to try to work around the system. Right. And I suppose what I'm, I'm hearing here is that this system really helped in her having the confidence to, to challenge you on that. And it's made a, a more effective relationship between you. I mean, a, a highly sensitive, you know, skilled, empathic manager may have come to such an arrangement quite quickly outside of a system like this. But I think you're saying that it's a system like this is more likely to improve the, these interactions um, beyond what an individual's sort of particular talent. Yeah, and there's also a paradox you can't escape in a management hierarchy. This is where I ran into as a CEO. I, I wanted to be a really empowering leader, right? I, I wanted to be the kind of leader that created leaders, not created followers, right? I, I wanted to, uh, to do what we ideally want managers to do anyway, which is create clarity and not direct all the action. I wanted to create clarity of who decides what and then give my people lots of space to be empowered and to lead. But the challenge I got to is if, if they're in an environment where fundamentally they're dependent on somebody else to empower them, then they're in a fundamentally disempowering environment, right? And, and you can't escape that irony, no matter how empowering your leaders are, if people are in an environment where they need an empowering leader to empower them, they're in a fundamentally disempowered system. And, and that dependency, you can't escape that no matter how good the leaders are until you get off the whole playing field by saying, let's create an environment where people have real fundamental power and aren't dependent on managers to empower them, right? And, and that changes the nature of the entire game. Now, today, if I went to one of my colleagues and started bossing them around, they'd look at me like, what the hell is wrong with him? And they'd push back and they'd say, you know, you have no authority to tell me what to do here. I, don't, I can't tell you as empowering as a CEO as I tried to be, I can't think of a single example where somebody pushed back and said, thanks for your input, but I'm going to go a different direction because you don't have the power to actually tell me that. You know that, right? Right? Like that doesn't happen no matter how much I wanted it to. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, so it creates a fundamentally different kind of environment. But you're right. It's creating the one that we ideally want management hierarchy to create anyway, which is a highly empowered environment with good clarity of who decides what and managers that support and don't get in the way. Right. Like that's what we want theoretically. <laughs> good luck uh, finding no. it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so let's, yeah, so let's talk a little bit about some of the critique, right, around holacracy, because if anybody goes after this show and Googles holacracy, they will find a slew of articles, you know, with yeah. very strong opinions on it. Um, so, so I suppose the first one is, and, it, and I've got a little echo of it right at the start of this, this, this meeting or this, this, this show, where you talked about the, um, the casting agent role. So you described your, your colleague as a role, and I was like, that's weird. Isn't, that, isn't she a person? And, and that's some of the critique I've read is that it, it's somehow dehumanizing because we're talking about people as, as roles and, and they're not real human. This idea of the real human being is somehow lost. Yeah. So one thing I'd say, um, I, I don't talk about humans as roles. I talk about roles as roles. And I talk about humans as humans. Uh, what holacracy does, it doesn't throw out the humanness. It differentiates it. Uh, there's a great quote, um, actually two quotes I want to bring from David Allen, who's the author of the book, Getting Things Done. And he's on and my a board. recent, uh, and, and also a guest on this show. Oh, was he? oh great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's an amazing guy. So he's, um, yeah. he wrote the forward to my book and uh, he's been doing holacracy for like seven years now in his company. Um, and one of his quotes I love, which is, 
if you don't mechanicalize the mechanical, you will mechanicalize your human relationships. And another quote of his about holacracy specifically, when he was getting into this, and he was also wrestling in his company. His company had a warm, loving human culture. And at first they wrestled with this as almost everyone with that kind of culture does. Holacracy brings in these mechanical processes, which it does, and it forces you to look at and talk about roles. It doesn't throw out your human uh, kindness. It doesn't force you to stop being compassionate. It forces you to separate that from the way you influence each other for the work. And when David got that, he said, ah, I understand what this is doing and what you're saying now. He said, it's an inappropriate use of love and care to use love and care to affect the result. Right? And I think that captures it beautifully for me. What, what we see in companies today is people using the, the, the relationships, the humanity, using it to affect a, a change. You, that's what politics is. You're leaning on the personal relationship. You're, as opposed to having another channel for that. So if your role needs to expect something from my role, we have a channel to process that and figure out what do we need to expect from each other for the shared purpose we're working towards. Because when that is out of the way, we can then connect human to human. Right? To me, I, I think not only is that, that um, totally misguided, that, that critique, it's exactly the opposite. To me, this is by far the most human heartfelt way I've ever experienced to run a company. I have more love in my company and my life now than I ever had before Holacracy as a CEO. Um, and it, it's, it's enabled by the system. It's enabled by giving people the space to be fully human and bring their entire self to work knowing that there is a separate process to figure out how do we expect things from each other and how do we deal with the mechanical business needs so that we can bring our full energy, our passion to that and we can be human together. Um, it, it's so different. In fact, so much so, one of the reporters that wrote possibly the article you're talking about, uh, she wrote, I think it, the headline was, um, holacracy uh, doesn't work because humans aren't designed to work like robots or something like that. Mm -hmm. We actually invited her uh, to one of our trainings, uh, a five-day deep dive in holacracy. Um, we said, look, we think you're wrong, but don't take our word for it. Come to our training. And she did. And she spent five days in a deep holacracy training. And afterwards, she came out and said, you're right. I was dead wrong about that article. Um, so <laughs> she written a follow-up. She should really write a follow-up. Yes, actually, she did. Um, okay. Yeah, she wrote well, maybe a, a recent article. On courts. Okay, yeah, right. that's interesting. So, uh, yeah, it's probably that the SEO is is favoring some of the early critiques and and, and yep. uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and a lot of that, the press seems to be a bit of an echo chamber uh, itself too. And once uh, once you have one, you know, sensationalized headline, they tend to spread like a virus, as far as I can tell. <laughs> right. Uh, so the other, so I've experienced democracy. Right. I, I did Sally's workshop in London, and it was just an evening of it. Uh, it was a it was a tactical. Well, it's actually a mixture. I think we did think we did a bit of tactical and a bit of the government's meetings, which are two of the main format. And I after I actually loved it. I was like, it felt like a game. And yeah. I heard somebody else actually in a negative sense describe it as Dungeons and Dragons, but for management. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I kind of got that point that it, it felt like a game, and I and I loved it. And other people came out of the same session and were like, oh, I hated it. You know, it's like they were treating us like robots. And um, so there was a lot of mixed reactions from the experience. Um, but one th one thought I had was, I as an as an experienced, I loved it. But it, I, if I'm working in a company and my CEO says, right, we've all got to play by these new role, rules, and there's this sense that it's pushed top down, I can imagine that. Well, a there'd be a lot of resentment for that, and and b 
how is that consistent with a message of we want you to be more self self organizing if at the same time you're saying oh but we're going to tell you how you ought to work <laughs> yeah it actually couldn't be any other way um I, I think it's it's another misunderstanding about the system holacracy is a power structure and it's a replacement for management hierarchy as a power structure uh, it's not telling you how to work. It's giving you a meta framework so that you get, you can self-organize on your team and figure out what roles do you need and what do you want to expect from each other and who makes which decisions and what processes should you follow. It doesn't tell you any of that. So when a CEO adopts holacracy, what they're doing is saying, I'm withdrawing power from the management hierarchy. And instead, I'm placing it in this governance process defined by a constitution. Um, so... The, the, it's not actually pushing on anyone saying, do this. It's saying, I'm removing power from managers. And if you don't do that, the old power structure simply competes and wins. Then it's, it's, you don't really have a new power structure. If you don't have a clear dictate from the top to withdraw power from the management hierarchy, you do not have a change. What you have is management trying to manipulatively tell people, come on, guys, go do this thing because we want you to, but we're still holding all the reins and we still have real power right? When a CEO literally signs the constitution, the Holacracy Constitution, it's an open source generic document. You can find it online. It's the same constitution used by the thousand some companies today doing Holacracy, right? Uh, when, when they sign that constitution, they are, uh, they're saying managers, you no longer have the authority to command anyone on your team, right? And instead, anyone who wants authority can get there by getting a role. And here's the process by which you can define roles and we can figure out what do we expect of different roles and all that. So it is a top-down decision. It's akin to a king in a monarchy signing a constitution. The monarchy that came before, where even the monarchy isn't above the law, right? So that's the shift. Um, you a can't Magna Carta for businesses. Yeah, I mean, you can't do that in any other way. Ultimately, you have to remove power from the system that came before. And you could try it. The only other way I've seen it work in societies is a very bloody, very messy revolution, which is not nearly as effective as a, a monarch actually choosing to voluntarily sign a document, right? Uh, a, and B, I don't think you could do that in a company, <laughs> right? It doesn't quite work that way, you know? Um, so it's, it's, it's again, a misunderstanding. It's thinking that they're telling them to do something specific. They're not. They're removing power from one system and putting in a, a different framework. From there, self-organize, go. Right, but the, but the new framework they're putting in, I mean, that is prescriptive in the sense of this is how you should operate these particular types of meetings, the tactical meetings. This is how you should operate a governance meeting. So that is a set of instructions, right? I mean... Uh, oh yeah, it's giving you a framework for uh, it's it's uh, basically it's it's the governance process that it's defining, and then it's defining the language. It's saying when you create a role in governance, here's the power you get when you fill a role, right? It says you get the authority to actually take any action or make any decision to get your your role's purpose met, unless there's a rule against it that's been defined by the governance process. So it's giving you this meta framework of how power works, and it is prescribing that just like before. Power was prescribed by managers have the authority to command people what to do, to define what roles people have and all that. So it's, it's, um, it's, it's a shift from that top-down management hierarchy power to something different. You can't shift that by adding this on top from the bottom up. It doesn't work uh, because you still have an underlying power structure. You're not actually changing anything. And that's what's so different. I think the misunderstanding about that comes from most change initiatives we see in companies are not replacing management hierarchy. They're built on top of it. 
right? My background's in agile software development in the software world. That's not replacing management hierarchy. It's built on top of it. It's a process you can use, but it's not changing the fundamental power structure, which by the way, is where it often ends up having issues. Yeah brings a different paradigm in and it clashes with the paradigm of the management hierarchy. Um, every other change initiative I've seen is still built on top of the management hierarchy framework. It's not replacing it. So naturally when we're having that mindset of any change is of course built on top of this framework, it seems like it makes much more sense for it not to be dictated top down, but like, especially if it's more about bottom up, like let's let it emerge that way. That makes total sense to me, but this is different. It's a replacement for how power works. At the end of the day, you have no management power anymore. There's no CEO. There's no, nothing that looks like a CEO. There's nothing that makes sense as a CEO or any manager anywhere in the system. So when you have that level of fundamental replacement for management hierarchy, you need something different. You can't build that on top of it. It's, it's not the foundation for this. This is a different new foundation. So you have to clean out the old foundation, which is why you need the top-down decision to do it. Uh, it's mm. kind of like well, the last act of the king saying, I'm dismantling the monarchy. That's what it's really doing. Right. But is there still not an inherent contradiction in you saying, like, you can self-organize in all of these areas, but you, and as I understand it, but you can't adapt the way you run a tactical meeting Are or, you actually, or a government. Yeah, tactical is uh, totally customizable. The tactical is just a default provided by mm. the constitution until you customize something your own. Uh, the constitution... It, it, it prescribes the absolute minimum possible. It doesn't tell you how to hire, fire, compensate, budget, plan, doesn't tell you what roles to have, doesn't tell you how to run tactical meetings except as a default until you find a better one. Um, the only thing it's prescribing is here's the governance process and here's the language that you, you define structure with in the governance meeting. That's it. That's the core power structure. That's a replacement for management hierarchy. Right? And that itself, you can uh, evolve as well. You just need a constitutional amendment to do it. Right? And the constitution itself is evolved. It's open source, uh, and we version control it just like we do Linux or an open source operating system. There's a community process for updating the rules of the, the operating system itself. Um, and you can fork it. So if a company wants to create their own version, they can. Um, it's about as good of an idea of, say, forking Linux and, and running that on your computer that is to say, most people don't want to do that, right? I mean, there, there's a tiny subset where that actually might be a good idea to do, but it's a very small subset. Most people want to take the out-of-the-box version and say, that's good enough for me. But if you want to customize it, yes, there's a process for that, and you absolutely can do that. Um, it's, it's a framework, but it's an open-source, forkable framework. Um, and it defines the minimum possible. It's not a one-size-fits-all thing. You, you're going to have to define all of your own business else on top of it to do that definition. And if you don't have that, I, I, let me say this, you always have some meta process for doing that. And if you don't explicitly define a replacement for management hierarchy, it either falls back to management hierarchy and people look to the CEO or the boss to see if they're comfortable with it, or it devolves to consensus. And then nothing happens until everyone agrees, which I've tried <laughs> and I'm not eager to repeat that experiment much earlier in my career. It is a disaster. Um, for most, most companies. Uh, so you always have a meta process. You always have some way of saying, here's how we update expectations of each other. And if you don't explicitly define it, the best you hope for is something like management hierarchy. Otherwise you get something political, shadowy, uh, I mean, consensus-y, which I call it the tyranny of consensus where everyone has a voice, but nothing can get changed, right? Um, it's- uh, right. 
Yeah. Okay, so I get that, but the the question is now coming. Well, okay, so I buy all of that. So why do you choose then to prescribe this off-the-shelf constitution and this structure for the various meetings rather than saying from a principles basis, actually what we advocate is you create a constitution, you create a formal explicit process for how you govern, you, you might want to consider creating some formal processes for how you imagine, um, you know, manage disagreements and tensions. But like, it, it, there must have been a choice to make it prescriptive versus sticking at the principles level. Yeah, well, so getting to the point of a, a, a concrete meta process that seemed good enough that it was, you know, basically workable as a starting point for self-organization took about 10 years of experimentation and a lot of pain along the way. So I'm all for, I mean, I, I chose to do that. I, granted, there was no off-the-shelf frameworks when I, I started that work, but um, if you want to take 10 years and like repeat those lessons and learn these the hard way and, you know, slow down your business for 10 years, go for it. You can create your own, own you know, uh, uh, version two and, and some companies do that. Um, and, or, or you can say, well, let's start with Holacracy. And then once we understand all the reasons and rules for what's there right now, then we can fork it and we can define our own version if we have a better idea. I mean, that's the benefit of open source software. Why, in fact, why doesn't any, why does anyone use Unix, or Linux? Why not just start your own version from scratch, right? Like then you can customize it for exactly what you need. And you know, there are very limited cases where that makes sense. And somebody custom designs an operating system, but in most cases, you start with what's there because it's efficient. And then maybe you figure out where you want to fork it. It's open source. You can do whatever you want with it. And the same is true with Holacracy. So, I mean, I can't tell you how many companies start assuming we'll probably customize and fork it later, but you know, why recreate that? Why not start with what we've got? And then, by the way, the vast majority of them decide, you know what? We don't need to fork it. Uh, it it's, it's really good and we can customize within it just like an operating system. You don't need to change the code to customize your computer. You have apps, you have all these things you build on top of the operating system. Red Holacracy is like an operating system. It's not telling you how to budget, hire, fire, compensate. Uh, it's not telling you how to break down your work. All of that's customizable on top of the basic framework it provides. So most people find they don't need to customize it. The framework's good enough and it saves them 10 years of pain. Uh, but that said, hey, I'd love to have more people out there taking 10 years of pain because, you know, we'll learn from them and holacracy will evolve by seeing what they do well. You know, um, same thing Linux does. Right. No, I, I, I could see that. I could see that as a rationale. Um, so let's so, so it sounds like um, as a recent example in terms of the press and kind of as, a, as somebody coming new to this, because I've never experienced it, I kind of have to go what's written, you know, written about it. And so Medium used it early on um and now they've they've chosen to move a, away from holacracy but they cite a few things one was like a, it, it they felt it was like a tax on their process and somehow and slowed them down um the, the the negative press itself was potentially an obstacle for hiring and also this sense that people who they wanted to bring into senior senior positions were somehow confused about you're asking me to come in as a boss but you're a bossless company so what, what's your reflection on on all of that and maybe you could take them each in turn yeah, totally. Um, so I, a couple of things. Um, I think, uh, it, so of the issues Medium had, uh, the hiring one I think was very real. They, uh, I mean, that's, especially in their environment, they were building a company, typical Silicon Valley company. They're in a highly competitive talent market. They're building, growing, and the people joining it are not looking for their long-term home. They're looking for where can I build a chunk of stock options, cash out in a few years and move on to my next thing. They're more hired guns. When you've got that kind of 
of talent pool that's highly competitive and they're taking a short-term view, it's really hard to tell them, hey, you're going to come in and not have all your manager authorities that you're, you're used to, you know? So there's a real issue there, especially with the, some of the negative press on top of that. And that was, a, I think, a really real, real uh, concern. The tax, I think they're right there was a tax, but the reason for that, for them, um, they didn't actually fully adopt holacracy. And this was uh, long before they stopped. Um, I told them flat out what they're doing is not sustainable and not going to work. Um, and, you know, they wanted to try doing it that way anyway, which I, I totally respect. But the issue was they didn't adopt the power shift of holacracy. They adopted the meeting mechanics. So in the overall holacracy uh, practice, there's these governance meetings and tactical meetings you've mentioned, this new way of like defining roles. They adopted all of that, right? And then they got to a point where they said, great guys, thanks, we're comfortable. Um, and they said, we don't want any support anymore. We wanna do this on our own, which is fine. We were coaching them through before that. But they never adopted the power shift. So they still had lead links as one of the roles in holacracy that actually has no manager-like authorities when you're actually doing holacracy by the constitution. It's also a tiny part-time job, 5%, 10% of your time. At Medium, it was a full-time job. It had manager authority, and they would celebrate when people got promoted to a lead link role. It was still a complete top-down management hierarchy, but with this, this meeting process wrapped around it. And I think that's fundamentally an unsustainable place. Holacracy does not work long-term if you don't get to the point where it is a truly different power structure that replaces management authority. It's really tempting, and I see other companies beside, they're not the only ones that failed with Holacracy for this reason. They get to the point where they have the new meeting processes that's much easier than the power shift, and then they say, you know what, we're gonna just try keeping our management hierarchy in place, but at least we have these cool meetings for breaking down work and roles within in the teams. And I don't think it works, I don't think it's sustainable. And I, I, I told the folks behind Medium that, but I also, you know, like they're on their own journey as everyone is, and. Um, and it might be that that is workable and we just haven't found a case where it worked yet, but medium was one of the cases where it didn't. <laughs> and there are many others like that. And so why do you just, why do you think they were right in describing it as a tax then? Well, if you don't adopt the power shift, you have two competing power structures. You have managers saying you on one hand, think of you're, you're a worker in that company. Do you work to please the manager or do you do what the governance output suggests you should do? Those are often at odds, right? And which power structure wins? And now worse, your governance takes time. It's, it, there's a tax to doing this governance process. If you've got the full power shift, then when you do the governance process, you're speeding up on the other side. You're using it to address deep issues so you can go faster. It's a slow down to speed up process. But if you don't actually use the power structure, you're not doing the output of governance, you're falling back to working in the management hierarchy. You don't get the benefit of the, the, the price. So you're paying this price to slow down and do this governance clarification process, but then you don't get the speed of the autonomy. With Holacracy, you have far less meetings, you have far less need for meetings, you know exactly what decisions you can make with no meeting whatsoever, and what the bounds on your authority are, that's the point. But that requires the power shift. Without that, you're still back to calling a meeting to make sure your manager's bought in or your team's bought in. It's, so if you do this process, which takes time, there's a cost, but you don't get the autonomy to then go fast. You still have to call meetings to make decisions. You still have to get manager buy-in to make decisions. You still have to get consensus of your team for a lot of decisions. Why are you paying the price of the governance process? You're not getting the benefit, right? Maybe you're getting slightly better job descriptions, but come on, that's not that useful. So, I mean, that's, I, it was one of the things I try to tell people, do not try to do Holacracy without the power shift. It's not sustainable and it's not worth it. 
Um, and, and I think that's exactly what Medium tried to do and exactly why it didn't work. It's, it's just not worth it without that. Mm, okay. Um, that makes some sense. And then the other sort of famous uh, example that, that, that you can read about is, uh, is Zappos. And what gets written about there is that um, it was this top-down push. And then afterwards, there was this huge turnover of staff. And it actually caused an enormous amount of disruption for Zappos. And they dropped down the, the table of best places to work and so on. What's your, what's your take on the Zappos? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's another one of like, um, the press works in interesting ways. Uh, so <laughs> I, I think there's a lot you can look at Zappos and say, what can we learn about what didn't work for them that could have worked better? Um, but there's also a lot we can learn about what did work for them. And that doesn't get written about much in the press. But the stuff that really we could learn that didn't work is not what the press writes about. <laughs> the stuff the press writes about, as far as I can tell, is almost pure fabrication um, and sensational headlines. And not to say that it's all like roses over there. There's definitely issues and challenges, but they're not, nothing to do with what appears in the press. It's a completely different world. So here's what actually happened and what the, the, the press reported on. Uh, the turnover is where the press uh, went negative. At first, the press was very positive on Zappos doing this. And then there was a bunch of people who left and then sensational headlines started showing up. But the real story of that is so different than the press. So Zappos is uh, mostly a call center, right? A, a large percentage of their workers are call center employees. Um, the average annual turnover for call centers uh, in the US is something like 70%, right? It, 70% turnover per year. That's, that's average, right? Um, at Zappos, uh, they, they offered an average of six months of pay for anyone who just decided, I just want to leave, right? When they, they went with the, we're all in with Holacracy. So they basically gave people a really easy out. Uh, in fact, an easy out, not even just for Holacracy. Many of the people who left cited, had nothing to do with Holacracy. They were offering six months of pay and it was time for me to move on anyway. I took it, right? So Second six months of pay. Yeah. So the, after offering six months of pay, they had, I think it was 18% of their workforce accepted that offer, right? So wait a minute, 18% they're call centers. So average annual turnover for a call center in the US is 70% when you're offering no pay. So the real headline in my mind with this, which is really remarkable, is a call center offered six months of pay to leave and 82% of the staff turned down the offer. That's shocking. I mean, absolutely unheard of shocking to me. What other call center could offer six months of pay and get 82% of their staff turning it down when 70% of them typically leave every year for no reason, right? Or for no money, I mean, right? So, and that's where like, oh my God, the press missed that. Totally missed that. And they reported it as massive staff exodus. They didn't report, many of the articles didn't mention six months of pay and didn't compare it to any kind of industry average for turnover, right? Like, so I think it completely missed the boat. Um, and then from there, it was just press looking for negative stories at that point and finding things that are actually quite normal. Like, yes, it's disruptive. What part of changing your power structure seems like it wouldn't be disruptive, right? <laughs> this is the most disruptive change I, I've been a part of in my career. It's massively disruptive, and it's a many-year journey. So, you know, if it's not disruptive, you're not doing anything transformative. You've got something you know, off there, or it's an incremental positive change at best, right? So um, now that said, Zappos has had tons of really good lessons learned the hard way. <laughs> I think there are tons of things to learn looking at Zappos, uh, including 
tons of things to learn that I think they did really well and tons of things that I totally would do differently if I was supporting the next company like them, right? But none of those are what the, the dialogue in the press is. Dialogue in the press is just totally off the actual real story on both sides in Zappos. Right. Well, that, I'm, I'm sure that for anybody who's listening to this podcast and is considering holacracy, they're going to be really interested in what you've just mentioned. So, you know, is there a kind of top three lessons, you know, what you'd do differently next time? Yeah, I, I think one of the huge changes, so I, Zappos is a big company and that, I, that, that makes it a lot harder than the smaller cases, right? Um, and uh, it's, here's the thing, I can, I can kind of have a sense of some of what was rough, but I don't, I don't know the solution. I don't know the answer. We're still trying to figure this out. Um, I mean, these are, this is new territory, but uh, one of the challenges was support. So uh, my company got involved and coached the first about 100 person department in Zappos. Um, and they've got lots of expert support from us, people that do this for a living, coming in, really supporting it, really helping. Um, and I think that got them off on a really, really good start. But they then made the decision, and I totally understand it, to not use external consultants to transition their remaining 1,500 employees. Um, one, that would have been really expensive. You know, It was expensive enough getting help for 100 people over six months or a year, actually, about that. Um, but 1,500 more employees, really expensive. And two, there's a challenge to their culture. They wanted this to be their thing from the internal, right? Um, but that also means they're getting novices now supporting it. Um, people that are brand new to it, that just learned as part of that first group of 100, you know, or just learning. Um, and that made it really difficult to, to support. Um, on top of it, they're doing something really new. And there's not a lot of... Um, other companies, they're the first one of this size, right? Oops, <laughs> sorry about my lights. Listening, <laughs> <laughs> we've now got dark. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. All right, one sec. <laughs> yeah, my my room here is on motion sensors. So there we go. <laughs> sorry about that. Um, so yeah, there's a yeah, and so I mean, they so they they did the self support and. What that resulted in was, you know, sometimes that support was more than adequate for the challenges of any given team. And sometimes there were teams that were just too damn hard. Um, so I think one of the challenges is how do you build support for a company that size? And, and some of this I take on my own company. Our goal is to help support companies like them. We did a great job, I think, for the first hundred people, but we didn't do a great job of giving them tools to self-support after that. And since then, that was years ago, we've built one of my main focuses in my company is how can we build more tools out there, uh, more, more ways that people can self-support this journey. And I think we're nowhere near done that, but we've at least got a lot more to work with than we had back then. Um, I think there's probably more lessons on Zappos' side about how to build up their own internal self-support um, that I'm sure they'd have some wisdom on. Um, there's also the, the systems and processes. I think uh, it took them a while before they started addressing some of their processes, like hiring, firing, compensation. And I think in hindsight, I would have helped kind of get them to focus on those processes and evolving them to be more compatible with self-organization uh, earlier in the journey than later. Um, so there's that. There's uh, um, one of the things I think they did really, uh, really well a little bit later is they really started building out uh, some of those processes and some of the software support for them as well, uh, which is pretty cool. They, they built some really neat things. Um, because they so have the right apps, right? You've got yeah. this idea of Holacracy as the operating system, and then you can develop your own 
custom apps, which I'm sure scares the hell out of people who already have a preconception. This is dehumanizing, you know, all the language, but, uh, you know, I, I quite like the metaphor, but then I'm a software developer, but, or have ex software developer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, yeah. And I, th- I think that's part of it. I think, um, yeah, I mean, there's so much there's looking back uh, on that. There's, uh, there are teams in there that just rocked it and still are rocking it and doing so well. And there are teams that struggled so much. And, um, I think there's a lot to learn for both, honestly. Uh, yeah, I, it's hard to fit it into one, one podcast, but it's definitely an ongoing dialogue. Um, and it's, it's not unlike the press, which paints it as pure negative. I just don't think that's an accurate portrayal. I think it's so much more complex. And I think the jury's still out. This is a, for a company that size, this is a 10 year transformation. Mm. You know, they're only years in, we have no idea. (laughs) We don't know where this is going to land and how this is going to work yet. We know it's working really well in parts of the company and others are struggling. Uh, And the ones that are struggling are because they're not really doing holacracy really well yet. Right. What I see is once, once a team really gets this and does it well, they almost never go back and it almost always works better. The trouble is, how do you get them to, to actually get to the point where they're actually playing the, the new game and doing it well? That's really hard. Mm. Uh, and that's where most of our learning is. How do we get through the, the hump of the shift, right? It's like there's this, this hurdle to get through. Once you get through it, the other side is awesome, but getting there is hard. And I like, what you're, I like the time frame you're talking in, because often we hear, we hear about transformation programs in you know, months, you know, maybe a year. But I think there's an honesty in that, because certainly from from a personal perspective, and I don't know how transferable this is to organizations, but back to 12-step rooms, there was something that people talked about in the 12-step room. You know, it takes 10, 10 years to get your marbles back and another 10 years to learn how to play with them. And I just yeah. wonder if that, that metaphor is apt. I, I think that's spot on. Um, I think that uh, yeah, one of the things David Allen said, he wrote this in the foreword of my book, um, and I, I thought it was well put. He said one of his intuitions, to his great credit, <laughs> in my view, when he first started this, most people expect it's going to be a faster change than it is. Uh, but he said he had just a deep intuition. This was a five-year journey. And that's for a small company. It was a company of 40 people, right? Um, and five years in, uh, he, I was chatting with him and he said, yeah, you know, I think I was close, but I think I was off. Now that we're five years in, I think it's going to be actually a 10-year journey. <laughs> um, and, you know, this is not a solution for a CEO looking for a quick fix for their company. This is the kind of solution for a CEO that's taking a generation long view or longer on their company. They're not asking, how can I set my company up for success for the next three years? They're asking, how do I build a company that endures generations, right? That's the kind of CEO that wants to adopt something like this. It's not a quick fix. It's a massive disruptive change with a massive transformative potential on the other side. And I think that's Tony's uh, a take that's what he's looking at. And one of his uh, interviews, uh, Tony's the CEO of Zappos, uh, one of the things he said in one of his interviews, his own lessons, was that he adopted it too slowly. Uh, he kind of let the company kind of step into it slowly. And in hindsight, get him in and make it clear this is what we're doing and, and organize around that. And I think there's wisdom in that too. If, if you're, you're in this journey, go in and do it until you discover it's not working, then go out. But until then being half in the, having a foot half in this water and half in the the management hierarchy waters is really painful. Right. Um, I know we haven't got that much longer, but I'd I'd like to touch um, briefly into your own personal experience. So like what's been the hardest thing that you've had to give up, you know, emotionally or intellectually, you know, in in this process? Yeah, I love it. So sometimes I get asked, um, 
you know, how, uh, how do you, uh, how did you deal with giving up control, you know, as a former CEO now moving into an environment like this, how did you give up control? And, you know, when I get that question, I usually say, you've got it wrong. Actually, I didn't have to give up control. I have more control of my company now, not less. Um, the difference is, so does everyone else, right? It's not about stripping power away from the CEO. It's about raising power of everyone else in the system. Now I feel like I've got a whole team full of people acting like CEOs, and we've all got access to the same tools. We all have access to the governance process. We can all update the roles and update the structure of the company. We can all lead our piece, our roles. So, um, so then I, I, from there, okay, so what did I give up? I, I really didn't give up my ability to control the company for its purpose. I just raised everyone else's. But what I did give up was the ability to run all over the company with my ego. Right, that's what I gave up. I gave up the ability to just drive the company somewhere because it would make me feel good or drive a decision down someone else's throat because it's what I wanted them to do. Right, it's how I would lead, not how they would lead. Um, I, I kind of gave up that. And with that, the, the feeling of, of uh, status, of importance, of, I mean, there's something addictive about being the guy at the top that has everything figured out or has all the answers. You're the superhero. Everything depends on you. It's, it, for me, I, I think the journey is a lot like what I hear from a lot of parents. We're like, you know, it feels good to be your child's superhero, I, I hear. You know, like their life depends on you. And, you know, it, there's something gratifying about knowing you're that important to somebody. But ironically, your job as a parent it's it's to work yourself out of that need, right? Your job is if if you if your thirty year old kid still needs you to be their superhero and save the day for them, you've done something wrong, you know. Like your goal is to obsolete yourself, and there's something so meaningful to me in that journey of working to build a system where you're no longer needed. And part of that is giving up my egoic control in the same way that parents have to at some point give up their ability to just control their child children for their own personal sake. They have to accept that their job is not to use their kids as their own property. They're to steward their kid's journey for a while until the kid can, can do it themselves. And this uh, metaphor that the kid is the company, my job as, as a leader with this is to steward the company for its purpose. And so it required giving up kind of the sense of this is my company for my purpose. Right. Um, and was there one moment where you like that really hit you? Um, oh man, uh, no. It, I mean, it's still hitting me. It's mm. it's it's a journey. It's it's a it's a ten year journey, right? It's um, I, and and now that I'm ten years in, more than that, into this journey, it might be a twenty year journey. I mean, how long is the journey to be a a masterful manager in a management hierarchy, right? To really be an empowering leader that creates leaders that's graceful and like, how long is that journey? It's a lifetime journey. And I think this is too, and, and I'm still walking it. And there are days that, you know, I, I fall back to old habits. Fortunately, the system doesn't let me impact the company with that anymore. When I show up like a, you know, egoic dictator now, my colleagues look at me and say, well, he's having a bad day. Let's ignore him. You know, um, whereas when I did that in my CEO days, I caused serious damage, you know? Um, so, is there, is there yeah. right. So has there ever been a moment where you've been like, oh, I'm on the wrong track here. I, you know, have you had, have you had crisis moments? Um, oh God, absolutely. Um, many of them lead to changes in holacracy, right? It's, we, we version control it just like open source software. We're on version 4.1. And what led to those versions 
was finding the limits of the prior versions, which often started with a, oh my God, you know, look at this dynamic happening here. You know, this, this is really getting in the way. And then that leads to changing the fundamental rules so that it can't get in the way anymore. So the system evolves with those. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's been a fascinating journey. And, you know, a lot of it too is, is for me, um, we talked about the human uh, aspects. For me, I think in the earlier days, I, I, I never totally understood those complaints from a sense of the experience in it, when you're really in it, is so human and it's so powerful. But um, the question is, how do you get people to that experience? Because when it's new, it's disruptive and awkward and I get all the feelings of it. You know, how do you get on the other side of that? So for me, those are the moments of despair at seeing just how hard the shift is and how much potential is there. If there wasn't the potential, it would be easy. You'd just give up on it. And if the shift was easy, then great. We get the potential. It's awesome. But it's not. This is the hardest shift I've ever been involved in in my professional career. You know? And, and yet, it's also the most transformative. And like the combination of those two, that's, what, that's, that's the challenge of this. You know? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and what's... what's yeah, I mean, you've talked about this, this continual process of updating the constitution and, and obviously companies are now building apps on top of the operating system. So there's a lot kind of going on in the ecosystem. What's your specific commitment to, to the whole piece right now? Yeah, we're basically trying to keep up. How can we support it? It's, um, it's kind of cool. We, I, in some ways we switched from like a company with a little movement to a movement that just happens to have this little company supporting it, <laughs> um, which is really cool. This thing is so much bigger than us. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a whole network of companies now doing this. Um, we, we did our second annual conference this year and you know, it, it filled, packed, a sold out crowd of people from all over the world living in this and doing this and many people doing for a living, like supporting other companies with this or supporting their own company internally as their internal Holacracy coach. So there's a whole world of, of companies now doing this and learning together. Um, and I, I feel like we're just at the beginning. Um, you know, now that we kind of have the base framework of Holacracy, it's what can we build on top of that? You know, what can we build? What new compensation structures can we build that work for this? Uh, what new uh, firing? Uh, that's an interesting one. I, I can genuinely tell you, my a company, I, I love the way we fire people. I don't know how many companies can say genuinely they love the way they fire people. I do. It's human. It's respectful. It's loving. You know, I've fired people and had them come back and become our customers and stay close personal friends with the people involved. And, and we, we found that not because Holacracy gives us the one right way to fire people, but because we experimented for years. Holacracy just enabled the experimentation, but it took five years of experimentation, but now we share our firing process and other companies have started adapting it uh, or starting with adopting it and then adapting it and then figuring out, well, what do we tweak? And they're trying different variations of it. And the best of those variations we'll probably copy and take into ours, you know? And so we're learning as an ecosystem, more human ways, more honoring, respectful ways to go through the question of should somebody even work here anymore? Which that's a, I mean, that's a tough question. And, and, there's something about this method that's, that's unleashed experimentation in these fundamental questions of business or how do we pay people or how do we budget or whatever. So I love that. That's to me the leading edge is all these apps, as we say in this metaphor, right? Which whether or not there's actual software behind them, I'm using it metaphorically, right? All these, these different 
apps on the operating system of a self-organizing framework like Holacracy. How do you do all these things? Um, which is really cool. And the other thing I think we're seeing right now is like, I, I've really started writing and speaking more about the deep connections I'm seeing to the humanity in this. To, uh, to me, Holacracy has the potential to bring love into business in a way that we just don't have today. Um, and that's where, where I am and where I want. I want more love in my workplace. And how do I get that? Holacracy enables it for me, um, but it's also only the beginning. It's, you know, now that we have it, we've gotten all the power stuff out of the way. And we've gotten a fundamental respectful system that invites people to drive real change. Now, what can we do with that basis, without the specter of power in the way, which we have in management hierarchy, without the politics in the way, all that's out of the way. How do we love each other more? Right? How do we build the kind of loving, caring environment that I want to work in? You know, how do I build that every day? And, and with a team of people now that can build it with me, right? To me, that's now some of the leading edge stuff that really excites me. Hmm. Wow, that's profound. Final question I love to ask uh, my guest is, um, for you, Brian, what does it mean to be human? Uh, I love it. Um, I go right, my mind goes to consciousness. Uh, to me, the ultimate gift uh, of our humanity is this consciousness. We have the ability to sense and to respond and to choose in the gap between there from what we sense, how we're going to respond. Um, and uh, I, I, what, for me, my own development as a human, I feel more and more human the more I can really, really be in that consciousness and then use that consciousness to drive whatever changes I choose to drive in my world. Uh, and to me, that's really what my work's all about. It's how do, I, how do I build a system, a framework around me that allows me to better harness my consciousness and everyone else's around me. You know, I, I went to being a CEO because I wanted to use my consciousness better. I, I had vision, I had insights, I wanted to drive change. And then I, I got sad. I realized I had built the same kind of system that may let me use my consciousness more, but by doing that, I was getting in the way of everyone else in, involved using their consciousness, you know? And, and so how do I build a system where no one's consciousness gets in the way of anyone else's and where we can all bring our full gifts as humans, right? Our full capacity to sense and respond uh, and then build a company that can harness all of that into its broader capacity to sense and respond in its world. How do we build conscious companies by harnessing all of our individual consciousness? So. Being human to me is a, a process of not just being conscious, but using consciousness, harnessing consciousness, driving change with consciousness. Um, yeah. Fantastic. Okay. And so for people who are listening to this and they want to learn more, where's best to direct them? Well, there's our website, holacracy.org. It's spelled with an A. Most people misspell it. It's H-O-L-A-C-R-A-C-Y.org. Uh, there's a lot of free resources on there. There's videos. There's uh, lots of things you can, you can uh, find. There's my book, of course, Holacracy. Um, and then uh, if people want a deeper dive, uh, they can contact us. We have a network of Holacracy coaches all over the world. So if you're exploring this for your company, uh, we can put you in touch with a, a local uh, qualified Holacracy coach, uh, or we help companies ourselves directly when they're the right fit for our kind of unique uh, focus in that. Um, and then we have trainings uh, all over the world. Um, uh, you can find them on our website as well. Uh, there's kind of a deep dive five day training for people that want a little bit of a taste. Uh, there's a, a online workshop, um, which gives you, it's a real light, easy, cheap way to, to kind of stick a toe in the water and get a sense of it. Um, they're in-person workshops as well, but the online's super convenient. Um, so you can find all of that on our website. Okay. Well, thank you 
so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, I really appreciate you taking on all of the, the tough challenges out there and, and giving us your view on where, where you're going next. So thank you very much. Um, cool. Thank you so much, Richard. It's been a really fun dialogue. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate your questions and digging in. Okay. Thank you. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.